0: How do you build a career with intention? How do you do the thing you love? It doesn't even have to be specific to the thing you love, just something with purpose that makes you feel like the thing you are doing every day, hour after hour, is much bigger than you. Everyone is trying to figure that out. It's part of this generational shift. People are starting to value mission just as much as money. It's also causing a lot of discomfort and even pain because that drive for mission pushes a lot of us, even people who appear to be extremely successful on paper, to look themselves in the mirror and ask, what the hell are you doing? In 2012, Dave Reese did exactly that. Dave was an electrical engineer who taught himself how to write code. And he got pretty good. So good that he became VP of engineering at a startup building analytics tools for Facebook advertisers. It was validation but there was something gnawing at him.
1: I sort of had this quarter-life crisis moment where I was asking myself, what am I doing with my life? I'm working really hard solving these problems, and fundamentally I'm helping big brands spend money more effectively on Facebook, um, and nobody cares about that, including me.
0: It took Dave a while to see that. It wasn't this immediate realization. But after about a year, it caught up to him. He knew that he didn't just need to change jobs, he had to change his entire outlook. You know, if you're...
1: If you're in the forest, the trees that you see are, are pretty interesting looking trees. But it's when you pull back and you kind of challenge yourself uh, with respect to where, where you've ended up. Is this place that you've ended up um, something that you have optimized for deliberately? Or is it something that's just kind of been this evolutionary process that um, you know one thing led to another and here's, here's where I ended up? And so it's kind of got this insidious uh, dynamic to it where... Your day-to-day can actually be relatively interesting and relatively satisfying, but it's when you're taking a a week off and thinking about the broader picture or when you're looking back over the last 12 or 18 months of work that you've done and you ask yourself, what is the net impact of this? And that's where I started to really challenge um, my assumptions about the way I was optimizing my career.
0: I'm Stephen Lacey. And this week, an episode about first principles. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Wonder Capital. It's the third installment of our three-part series from Wonder. We're covering the value of the beginner's mind, 10x problem solving, the solar first approach to financing, and ultimately, how to design a career, a product, and a startup team with intention. Our career-questioning software developer, Dave Rees, he's now Wonder's co-founder and chief technology officer. And Wonder, as you've heard, is taking on one of the most difficult problems in solar, how to fund complex commercial projects at scale. Rather than throw more bankers at the problem, the startup is using software. So, spoiler alert, Dave did get to put those skills to work in a more meaningful way. So how did Dave Reese go from optimizing clicks on Facebook to optimizing the way we finance solar? It started with creating a very basic framework
1: the framework is quite simple it's really revolves around this idea that if we're gonna work really hard on some problem and you know if I'm going to characterize myself as the type of person who um, in a lot of ways defines myself by the work that I do uh, then why would I not work on the most important problem and that of course begs the question: What is the most important problem? The answer that I came up with at the time was energy, education, and healthcare. Those were the three most important problems, uh, from my perspective. Energy, in my opinion, is the obvious winner of those three, specifically because you can have a fantastic education system and a fantastic healthcare system, but if you don't have a planet to live on, um, it's not a very bright future.
0: Okay, so that's a very important realization, but you know, it's still broad. How do you narrow down into a focus of where you want to end up at that point? Once you have that framing on paper, how did you act on it?
1: The hardest part of this process is figuring out what you want to optimize for and what you want to do. And then once you make that decision, it becomes a on a relative basis, a much more focused problem solving exercise. So that is to say that once I had kind of determined that this, uh, you know, that energy was the place that I wanted to focus, uh, then I was left with this question of how do I essentially make a foray into the energy industry uh, without really having much background other than my electrical engineering degree? And so that's when I started to scratch my head and ask myself what are those places where thought leadership is concentrated, or at least where there is a concentrated uh, population of people who are intimately familiar with the inner workings of the industry? And uh, it was at that point in time that I uh, stumbled across the energy technology division at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. And so did basically the same thing that I did when I was coming straight out of college, which was I more or less uh, forced them to hire me by telling them that I'd work for them for free. As expected, there were some very, very smart people there with some very well-formed opinions about the way the energy industry works. And in particular, um, the group that I was working most closely with was focused on demand response. And that was, you know, kind of this uh, really jumping off point for how I, how I started to think about the way in which I could apply my expertise uh, coming from the world of software within the context of the energy industry.
0: And it was at Lawrence Berkeley when you stumbled upon this graph charting residential utility and commercial solar growth rates. And that was a wake up call for you, right? Yeah, that's right. So what did you see? Did it cause this sudden realization about a huge opportunity? Yeah,
1: I think it it built over a, probably a period of a couple of weeks where I looked at this thing and I, and I thought to myself, that's really an interesting dynamic because you see pretty strong growth within utility scale and you see pretty strong growth within residential. And then there's almost no growth to speak of uh, within the commercial segment. And it was there that I asked, I started to inquire, what's going on here and it turned out it was pretty well understood that there's a financing challenge and so digging into that a little bit further it became pretty clear to me that there is a real opportunity to deploy software to solve that problem
0: armed with a clear mission experience at a government lab and some very compelling data dave brainstormed with his longtime friend and collaborator sam Bowden. They'd been coming up with company ideas since they were freshmen in college. They approached a former VC named Brian Bursick. Brian had actually turned down an idea of theirs a couple years earlier. But they all liked each other, and Sam and Dave trusted Brian's instincts. So in 2013, they all convened in Colorado to figure out the scope of the challenge. Dave's new career framework gave him a chance to learn about energy from experts. And it helped him spot a new business idea, one that could be worth billions. By all accounts, it worked well. But how do you take that selection criteria and use it to build an entire company to create a software product when you've never worked in solar and everyone is telling you not to do it? That is a different layer of difficulty, and it's what I wanted to learn more about when I spoke with Dave about the origin of Wonders Software.
1: We spent the first probably four to six months doing a really, really aggressive research project on the industry and endeavoring to become as smart about the industry as we possibly could. And that's where some of the idiosyncrasies associated with the solar industry really started to shine. I think one of the things that was really profound about that period of time was the willingness uh, that we encountered. For uh, you know, people were incredibly willing to talk to us about this particular problem, and people would advance you know pretty strongly held uh, positions around. The shape of the problem. You talk to various different people, and you get a lot of different types of answers. But what really was interesting is uh, just the willingness to, for, you know, that people had to to share their their opinions and their 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 perspectives on the industry. I think you. I don't know this, but I think you go to other industries like I don't know oil and gas or whatever. I don't know that you have that same level of openness. Um, I think a lot of people in solar are really excited about helping to incubate the growth of the industry. And they were immediately willing to get on the phone and share their perspectives, which I thought was really, really cool and, of course, was incredibly helpful uh, in the early days when we were really trying to wrap our heads around this problem.
0: So did anyone tell you not to do it?
1: Everyone told us not to do it. Everyone, I mean, almost without fail, You know, we heard horror stories where it's like, here are all the reasons that this is a terrible idea. Here are all the reasons that operating within commercial is incredibly difficult. And to us, that's that's the signature of opportunity. Um, We wanted a really difficult problem to work on. And we also wanted to bring the power of our beginner's mind. Uh, We were armed with software as our primary tool. And we weren't approaching this problem from the same perspective that solar experts were approaching this problem or from the same perspective that you know finance people were approaching this problem. Uh, we were approaching it from a bit of a different angle. And every time we heard people tell us all of the reasons s- solving this financing problem is incredibly challenging, we viewed those more, than, more as problem statements than a laundry list of reasons why we're going to fail.
0: I want to hear more about the beginner's mind. Uh, Talk about how you can use the beginner's mind to help you tackle an idea differently from others who may be already familiar with the problem.
1: So the beginner's mind, generally speaking, I think is something that is really undervalued. When we're out recruiting for our team, we generally are not selecting for people who have solar expertise uh, or who have finance expertise, Occasionally, we do hire people uh, who have those backgrounds. And uh, there are, of course, specific domains where it is incredibly valuable um, to bring some of that context. But we also believe in, you know, one of the things that defines the way that we approach problem solving is that we endeavor to build up our understanding of the world from first principles. So we spend a lot of time identifying what we believe with a, lot, a great deal of conviction where we're making assumptions and we endeavor to ensure that the entire team is kind of galvanized around this tree trunk of knowledge that defines the sort of immovable pieces that you know characterize our understanding of uh, our problem domain the beginner's mind is really powerful because it doesn't come preloaded with assumptions that are unfounded you know the beginner asks what would otherwise be characterized as stupid questions, but those stupid questions can often shed light on places where we've made unstated assumptions and where uh, it it behooves us to further scrutinize the framework that we use to, you know, to understand the world or to understand our problem.
0: How would you approach this differently from a software developer's perspective compared to say, a financier's perspective, because up until this point, most people saw this purely as a financing challenge, which was why so few folks were touching it. How do the two approaches differ?
1: There's a couple pieces to that. I think one piece that's really important goes back to this commentary on the way in which we endeavor to think from first principles and we endeavor to build up our understanding of the world from kind of the ground up. And so we never came to the table asserting. That the only way to finance a commercial system is to have a highly bankable commercial off taker. If you operate under that assumption, the addressable market is very, very limited. Not because commercial entities are not credible, but because evaluating that creditworthiness is cost prohibitive. And so, we from day one we were taking a solar first approach, where it's about the asset first and foremost. Um, and so. I think that speaks to this notion of the way in which we were able to apply kind of the beginner's mind um, in a pretty powerful way to define just the the basic approach to risk evaluation.
0: Okay, so you're very clearly looking outside of solar then to solve this challenge. So like what other companies or software did you borrow from? Where did you get inspiration?
1: One of the, the companies that informed a lot of our philosophy with respect to the way in which we deploy automation uh, is actually PayPal. So so PayPal was pretty widely recognized uh, in the late 90s and the early aughts for their fraud detection methodology. And that problem can be a really, really challenging problem. Naturally, there are certain leading indicators that are pretty reliable predictors of fraud, but there are also patterns that are much better evaluated or much more effectively evaluated by human analysts, where there is sort of this context that a human analyst can bring to the evaluation that's very challenging to replicate through software. And so the observation was that if you change the solution space a little bit and you take as a prior that you're not going to eradicate humans from your evaluation process, and instead you focus the software development activity on empowering your analysts to be much more effective and to be able to to accommodate a much higher throughput, you end up with a very different type of solution. And that's defined by something along the lines of decision support, where the infrastructure is parsing information, is doing some level of pattern recognition, and is ultimately endeavoring to present uh, information to humans in a way that humans can make the ultimate semi-subjective adjudication about some particular risk factor
0: software of course allows you to scale quickly and your goal is to scale how do you use software to 10x your deal flow you know to get someone from your organization to go from evaluating 10 deals a week to 100 deals a week
1: you know i think of 10x problems as categorically difficult problems anytime you want to achieve a 10x that's very very difficult and uh It's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I like to think of anything less than 10X as trivial. To answer your question, that 10X is comprised of a a couple of key factors. One factor is, of course, making – is sort of this filtering notion. We're making sure that we're looking at deals that are going to go. And so one of the ways to increase efficiency is by endeavoring to provide really tight feedback loops to our partner base around – what deals are viable from our perspective or at least financeable from our perspective and what deals are not. So the the other factors that contribute to that throughput really revolve around uh, specific aspects of uh, our underwriting and contracting process. And so when we evaluate risk, we are, you know, depending on the vertical, we look at community solar a little bit differently than we look at, you know, a PPA on a school or on a church. And, you know, those deals look a little bit different than uh, the way in which we look at warehouses. But generally speaking, we're categorizing these risks, these leading indicators of things that have potential to jeopardize project revenue um, into various different buckets. And what we endeavor to do is be very specific about the places that our team is spending significant amounts of time. As we sort of evolve this underwriting process and endeavor to continue to increase our throughput and decrease our marginal cost of, of contracting a deal. We are looking for places where our uh, evolving infrastructure can uh, continuously kind of chip away at the things that our humans need to do. The ultimate kind of ideal solution uh, or, or ideal kind of outcome is a world where our humans are doing only the things wherein humans really deliver meaningful value to the deal execution process. And that's not to say that they don't deliver meaningful value. They absolutely do. And, the, and we expect human analysts to be a very important uh, and integral part of our underwriting process and our contracting process in perpetuity. Um, but it's about pulling all of the things off of their plate that they don't need to do and teeing up the decisions that they need to make in a way that is conducive to increasing their throughput.
0: Speaking of how your team functions, I want to bring this back to the start of our conversation about first principles. It's not always easy, but it's certainly easier to do it for yourself, to create that framework for, for your own personal guidance. It's a lot harder to do it for a company culture, for a lot of people. How have you applied this philosophy to the way the Wonder team operates?
1: Yeah. Another thing that we do is we focus on building a culture that carves out really a safe place for people to be wrong we have a we have a pretty demanding team which is to say that our team is designed and structured to demand first principles based reasoning pretty much at all times basically at the drop of a hat anyone within the organization uh, should be ready and able to defend you know some decision that they've made or something that they're doing really from first principles It sounds when when we we characterize kind of the way in which we operate that way. It sounds like everybody needs to be right all the time, uh, because it would stand to reason that if you are reasoning from first principles, you are right. But that's not actually the case. You know, we take a um, a highly experimental approach to uh, you know the way that we develop products, the way that we solve problems. You know, we we never to to demonstrate a lot of humility in terms of what we know and what we don't know, uh, which is to say that we. Uh, have a great deal of confidence in the things that we take as givens within industry, because those things are built up not from status quos, but from first principles. Um, And uh, we are readily willing to adjust our positions in light of new data across other dimensions of our problem domain.
0: What kind of advice would you give to people who maybe were in a similar position to you back in 2012? You were doing really interesting work for a space you didn't care much about. How can people use their talents for good? You know, it's it's a challenging
1: question, and I think it the the answer is definitely going to differ depending on who you are and and what your proclivities are. I would uh, encourage folks to not settle. I think it is important to be true to uh, your mission as an individual. In terms of this this notion of of litmus tests, uh, I like to ask myself, you know, what am I going to be able to tell my grandkids? Am I going to be proud of that story? I think. You know the world has some pretty meaty problems to be solved right now and the hardest part uh, i think of optimizing your or orienting your career around uh, solving these meaningful problems is figuring out what your entry point is figuring out what you want to do once you know what you want to do um, and that's you know not always uh, the type of question one can answer definitively but once you have a pretty good idea then I think it becomes a problem-solving exercise where it's about thinking very, very broadly about how do you apply your skills or um, how do you find those opportunities. The most profound factor to recognize is that um, there isn't a need to settle. And as you know, a team member, you can... Demand a high level of accountability from your organization, Um, which is to say that I think a lot of organizations endeavor to position the work that they're doing as having meaning or having impact. But I think it's important to evaluate that for yourself objectively. And uh, I think it's important to ensure that that there isn't an air gap between the way in which the organization operates and the way in which it purports to operate. Um, I think a lot of companies pay lip service to their mission and I think it's to, you know, the detriment of everyone involved.
0: Damn, and you thought commercial solar was hard. That kind of sweeping change seems more daunting than funding solar projects. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Dave Reese, the CTO, COO, co-founder and resident philosopher at wonder capital thanks so much thanks Stephen. it's been a fun conversation this episode was produced for wonder capital it's part of our three-part series from wonder for our previous two episodes, one on the women of wonder closing deals and one on a fruitful solar bromance, go back through the interchange feed, or you can find them in the show notes of the episode. Of course, if you want to learn more about how to get your solar project funded, or if you want to invest in solar projects yourself, go to wondercapital.com GTM, wonder with a U, wondercapital.com GTM. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey.